Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at The Turning Tides Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Warning, this episode of Turning Tides contains depictions of war, violence, suicide, sexual assault, rape, gore, mature themes, abortion, and racism. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Joseph Pascone, and before we start today's episode, I'd like to take a minute and say thank you to you all. Truly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for downloading the show and for making Turning Tides so successful. I started this show because I love history and storytelling, and I wanted an outlet to tell the stories which are not so often told. Knowing that people around the globe are enjoying this show brings me serious, warm feelings. Thank you also to everyone who's made this podcast possible. My mom and dad have always supported me in anything I've pursued. Thank you. I'm eternally grateful. Melissa is the greatest editor, producer, partner, anyone could ask for. I'm incredibly lucky that she's in my life. This show literally would not exist or be possible without her. Thank you. To my brother and sister who have always been there for me, thank you. Alex Perez, the maniac of Manhattan, thank you for all your help in getting the podcast off the ground. My Sicilian grandparents, Nini and Nono, thank you for telling me the stories of my great-grandfather, who lived and worked every day from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. in La Cara Frides, Sulfur Mines. Thank you to my Neapolitan grandpa, who told me stories of living in a rundown apartment with the rest of his family of 13 in post-World War II New York City. Thank you to my Puerto Rican abuela, who taught me so much about right versus wrong, and inspired me to tell the stories of lesser-known parts of history, or history which has been hidden. I know she would be proud of me if she were alive to hear the show. Thank you all again so much. Without further ado, this is Turning Tides, Italian Footsteps, Episode 5, Tempered with Fire, 1867 to 1896. Giuseppe Garibaldi was now an old man. The 60-year-old hero of the two worlds had the wounds to justify the moniker. Now, however, he could hardly stand up, let alone lead a battalion. Despite this, he was still one of the most able commanders the Italians could call to name. During the recent War of 1866, his volunteers, the Hunters of the Alps, 
were the only effective Italian fighting force. They were relegated to assault the mountainous region of Tyrol, or as the Italians called it, the Trentino. They were victorious against the Austrians, driving all the way to the walls of Trent, the main city, before being hastened to withdraw. As the war ended, Italy pushed to acquire Trentino during peace negotiations with Austria, but their ally Germany would hear nothing of it. Garibaldi and the citizens of Italy were humiliated. He started to garner support for a political movement to annex Rome. This was all pretext for another campaign against the city which had eluded him his entire life. In 1848, he had heroically held part of the city's walls, without cannons or ammunition. His nostalgia for the glory days, along with the anguish over losing Anita, played heavily on Garibaldi's aging mind. He was absolutely disgusted with the state of Italy as it stood. The parliament was useless, unable to do the things necessary to transform the Italian countryside. Garibaldi would take matters into his own hands once more. He collected a band of approximately 10,000 Italians to march on the walls of Rome. His hope was that the rebellion he had manufactured inside Rome itself would be successful. However, this uprising failed to materialize in any substantial way. Garibaldi then expected support from the National Italian Army. This never came. Prime Minister Urbano Rotazzi got cold feet at the last second and withheld the army, hoping the situation would resolve itself. The French, by order of Napoleon III, quickly sent a force of 20,000 to relieve the besieged papal forces. In a scene sadly similar to 1848, the French landed at Civetta Vecchia and gave battle to Garibaldi. The Battle of Montena would be the final and most disastrous attempt made by Garibaldi to take Rome. During the fight, the well-trained French riflemen mowed down the red shirts. The French were armed with the newest bolt-action Chespot rifle, and by day's end, 1,000 red shirts were dead or wounded, while another 1,000 were made prisoner. The Ratazzi government quickly fell, another black mark against the teetering new state in the eyes of the public. Ratazzi had failed to learn his lesson the first time, much like after the Battle of Aspromonti in 1862. He was removed from his position due to his complicity and lack of conviction when the time came to be decisive. The political landscape of Italy, as well as its economy, were in shambles. Their most recent war with Austria cost the country $650 million, and the relocation of their capital from Turin to Florence cost many millions more and their military spending only increased from there. This was at the expense of the poorest people, who were targeted exponentially more than the rich. To say this was unpopular would be the understatement of the century. It was hated. Southerners were already disillusioned with most governments, and quick to say something about it. As taxes rose, the first of many scandals rocked Parliament. It was brought to light that a cabal of bankers had purchased the tobacco monopoly for pennies. The rest, assumedly, had gone directly toward lining the pockets of the heads of parliament and the king himself. While so many of their people lived in squalor, 
Politicians and businessmen did whatever they could to take advantage of their power, even if it endangered the people they were charged to defend and protect. This was the norm for Italian politics since long before Victor Emmanuel and the formation of the Italian state. Within Parliament, the center-right Destra Storica was in control. These were the men who were mentored under Cavour. Few of them had the gumption to see their plans through. The position of Prime Minister, as well as the seats of Parliament, rotated through people faster than a game of musical chairs. This constant exchange of titles and power left Italy in a state of disarray. This trend still affects Italian politics, with most prime ministers only reigning for an average of a year and a half. Many preferred to resign from their position, as opposed to being put on the chopping block with a vote of no confidence. This gave them the ability to regroup and assess their prior failings in preparation for potentially taking another stab at the top job. Many Mazzinians, Democrats, and Southern politicians opposed this center-right conglomerate. Crispy and Nicotera helped lead the center-left party, which was composed of people who fought in Sicily with Garibaldi and served in his corrupt administrations, as well as genuine liberals who believed in lowering taxes and being cautious in foreign policy. The radicals, a much smaller group, also opposed the center-right in their own way. They were headed by the soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning poet Gaioso Carducci. With their strong vocal opposition to the corruption and mismanagement of the countryside, the powers that be were eventually antagonized into reforming their government. One thing on which almost all sectors of parliament could agree was that there was a need to unite the country into one state. They implemented massive taxes to increase the size and dexterity of Italy's armed forces. The Gris tax was by far the most inflammatory. This was a tax on the grinding of chestnuts and grain, and it directly affected the lives of millions of Italians, who usually subsisted on nothing but the paste created by grinding these cereals and nuts. There were riots in the streets of central Italy, where the poorest voiced their frustration through violence. Their calorie count was precariously low as it was, and this new tax only made their standard of living worse. Martial law was declared, and thousands were sent away to far-off penal islands to live in exile. These egregious taxes were implemented to stave off bankruptcy and keep the military machine running. In the end, it caused many central Italians in Romagna to nearly starve. Paradoxically, this rendered many men unfit for service. Italy had invested money in their military in vain. The subject of war is a moot point if your population is too starved and sickly to fight. The radicals on the far left were incensed by this. There was no freedom in Italy, only poverty and inequality. In Prussia, a massive conflict was brewing with France. Tensions over Alsace-Lorraine finally exploded in the summer of 1870. As hostilities increased, Napoleon removed the French garrison of Rome, leaving the city practically defenseless. The fervor to take Rome was now at an all-time high. Italians, who were once ordinarily peaceful, 
were now in the throes of early nationalism. They demanded a march on the Eternal City. Italian Prime Minister Dr. Giovanni Lanza preferred a peaceful settlement and tried to resist violence for as long as possible. On September 2, 1870, the Battle of Sidon sealed the fate of Napoleon III. He abdicated the throne after his whole army was captured, after which he was forced to live in exile. Upon his surrender, his wife furiously exclaimed, quote, Why didn't he kill himself? Unquote. On September 20th, Italy finally marched on Rome and blew a hole in the Aurelian walls around Porta Pia. After a token resistance, Pope Pius IX surrendered to the Italian army. Back in France, the Third Republic was proclaimed. But France was still in the middle of a war with Prussia, so the state of things was precarious, to say the least. Paris was besieged, and the civilians began the Paris Commune. It was revolutionary. Some of the party leaders, called communards, were also part of the International Working Men's Association. This group consisted of left-wing liberals, Freemasons, trade unionists, socialists, communists, and anarchists. With such a diverse group of ideologies present, it's little wonder that the commune fell due to infighting. Garibaldi found himself fighting the Prussians in Dijon, on the side of the new French Republic. He considered the communards and the International Working Men's Association the, quote, son of the future, unquote. Socialism was an ideology that Garibaldi naturally gravitated toward. It was anti-clerical, anti-liberal, and anti-authority. Garibaldi had long been disillusioned with Mazziniism for its clericalism, and the Italian government for its authoritarianism in the South. The war against Prussia ended in complete capitulation by the French Republic on May 10, 1871. The Franco-Prussian War was directly responsible for the creation of the German Empire, which would rule Central Europe until World War I. The Paris Commune was destroyed. Reactionary French army units brutally butchered the communards. Upwards of 20,000 Parisians were murdered, not by the Prussians, but by their own countrymen. Garibaldi was now considerably older and had to be carried around the battlefield on a chair which was lifted up by four men. Even so, he held his own against the Prussians throughout the war, showing that grit and determination can at times outweigh training and professionalism. Back in Italy, the lackluster way in which Rome was captured did more to inflame the radicals and nationalists in Parliament than to bring to fruition the myth of national unification. Carducci wrote in a famous poem, quote, Geese of the capital, be quiet. I am Italy united and great. I come in the dark because Dr. Lanza is afraid of the rays of sun. Please, geese, make less noise. Unquote. The first thing Italian officials did when they arrived in Rome was to appease the papacy. The Pope was given an incredibly generous deal. Church customs and rites would remain sacrosanct. The Pope would receive a massive indemnity, and priests would not be held to the same standards of the law as everyone else. This effectively created two states, the state of the Church, which had massive influence in local politics, education, and welfare services, and the civilian state, which was often seen as corrupt and disreputable. In spite of this, the Pope wanted nothing to do with the new Italian nation, and he upheld the ban on any true Catholic voting. 
After all, the sale of ecclesiastical land was still the main way the state made ends meet, often by banning orders of priesthood and forcibly seizing their abbeys. The papacy would go on to denounce the existence of Italy until 1929, when they finally recognized the country after signing a concordat with Mussolini's fascist state. This concordance, which made Roman Catholicism the state religion of Italy, is still in effect today. Contractors, speculators, and shoddy businessmen rushed to the new capital to begin construction. The powers that be wanted Rome transformed from the temporal home of the Vatican into the capital of a new, modern state. Land was sold en masse to those who had money. Upwards of two million hectares. Overnight, the land was transformed. This boom would eventually go bust, thanks to the banks overloaning out money. This was the third time the location of the Italian capital had been changed in 10 years, and it predictably brought the economy to its knees. The Italian government owed $8 billion to the banks of England and France, and the bill was coming due. The country was at serious risk for bankruptcy. Taxes had been raised on the poorest citizens. In fact, between 1865 and 1871, Direct taxes went up 63%, while indirect taxes on foods and spices increased a mind-numbing 107%. After Rome's capture, the distinction between real Italy and legal Italy were laid bare for all to see. The king hated Rome and did not arrive in his new capital until much later. Upon his arrival, there were no crowds gathered to greet him. He boredly said to his aide, quote, We are finally here. Unquote. The king felt as much like a prisoner as the Pope claimed to be. He would have much preferred clean Alpine living as opposed to the malaric conditions of 1870s Rome. Parliament had no place to call its own. All it had left was the Palazzo Montecitorio a nondescript 17th-century building, which was a stone's throw away from Vatican City. With all the new buildings, a new parliament should have been built for Italy's legislators, but it was never even attempted. Roman land was purchased by a variety of citizens. Some of the main buyers were ultra-conservative Catholics who did everything they could to maintain Vatican architecture. The result was a hodgepodge of modern and classic design transforming Rome into a strange architectural site. Regionalism only increased with Rome's capture. Milan and Turin still claimed to be the true centers of New Italy, while Florence was still one of the great artistic cities of the world, and Naples could brag that it was the most populous city in Italy by a long shot. Meanwhile, the smallest townships did not feel attached to the unified state. They still held ancient grudges and beliefs which they were not ready to change. To quote the priest of Mora, quote, You see in these small places, the world begins and ends here. The church tower is the brightest star in their little firmament, and there is as much passion in these rivalries and squabbles as there is, say, between France and Germany, unquote. In Parliament, the center-right alliance was constantly changing ministers and governments. Their shaky coalitions were a deep-rooted source of instability. 
but their austere economic policies kept the books balanced. Unfortunately, their hands-off economic policies only exacerbated problems for the south of Italy and Sardinia. For example, in 1869, there were 25 banking houses in northern Italy, and only three in the south. A decade later, the hands-off policy had yielded its rewards. There were 193 northern banking houses, and only 31 in the south. The problem, northern lawmakers preached, was the backwardness of the southern peasant, local political corruption, and subversive criminal elements. The peninsula was split between the corrupted southerner and the arrogant northerner. These sentiments quickly became sinisterly racist. César Lambroso was a brilliant young criminologist and doctor. Obsessed with the idea of crime, he traveled extensively with the army during the brigand war. He wanted to understand why people became criminals and how criminals could be spotted and stopped preemptively. At the time, his groundbreaking work, Criminal Man, supposedly shed light on southern Italian criminals. After examining the corpse of a local bandit, Cesare formed his hypothesis. Christopher Duggan details Lombroso's discovery in the following quote from The Force of Destiny. Quote, While examining the skull, he noticed an anomaly. Where the occipital ridge should have been, there was a depression, 34 millimeters long, 23 millimeters wide, and 11 millimeters deep. Unquote. Cesar's work was immensely popular, and early socialists even lauded it. His theory was that most violent offenders had an intense amount of what he called atavism. The main determination for atavism was race. Quote-unquote lesser races, he postulated, had more animalistic tendencies. Conveniently, the most perfect and least atavist people were white Europeans. Since southern Italy had been mixed with North African and Middle Eastern genes, they were especially prone to atavism and, in turn, violence. This helped explain away the inept and corrupt state of southern Italy and validated many northern stereotypes. In reality, the facts and graphs were complete BS, and they have since been debunked by actual scientific research. Additionally, Italy was dealing with the threat of the Mafia, which haunted the Sicilian countryside and the minds of North Italian politicians. The Mafia, time and again, were used to explain away violence and were often given a starring role in any insurrection by the Italian press. The Mafia had existed for time immemorial, and groups just like it have existed throughout the world up to this point. The Mafia was different in that it truly infested all aspects of Sicilian society. Politicians and heads of communities invariably had to work with the local bosses to get things done, and businessmen and merchants would gladly pay money to their local warlords for protection. Mafia members, or mafioso, lived by a code of personal honor, and they died by that code. They believed in private violence as a means to an end, but their paternal nature toward the poor and their acts of charity made them local celebrities. In a society where the state refused to govern and fix basic problems for their people, the mafia drew the attention of those who were enterprising and bloodthirsty enough to handle the day-to-day. -day. Try as they might, the government could not catch these so-called men of honor, 
mainly due to the fact that many Southern politicians were implicit in their freedom and culpable in their crimes. In Parliament, the situation was rapidly deteriorating for the center-right. Their attempts at reform were often met with opposition from their own coalition, causing taxes to remain high, the electorate to remain small, and the radicals to grow in vitriol and regional popularity. By 1876, the time for change had come. A new center-left coalition was formed by the Piedmontese statesman Agostino de Plentis, who was determined to reform the government. His coalition consisted of members of the left, right, and center, who operated under a platform of increased voting rights, universal education, and local government autonomy. It was the start of the age of transformism. The budget was now in surplus. The right-wing government had been relentless in their enforcement of taxation on the poor, and it had finally paid off before it brought their reign to an end. They had accomplished their goal of unifying the country from Sicily to the Alps. Through the massive amount of life lost through military crackdown, disease, and starvation, they had done it, and they had created millions of refugees in the process. With the left now in power, things were promised to change. It was hoped that sensible reforms could be achieved, which even the radicals could support. In practice, transformism saw the further degradation of democracy and the increased feeling that authoritarianism was needed. Parties didn't matter anymore, so as long as you didn't mind lying about some of your principles, you could get a seat at the table and have your ideas heard. Carducci decried these practices, saying, quote, Transformism is an ugly word, as in Dante's infernal circle of thieves, where men are neither serpents nor men, but unquestionably reptiles, and which, instead of uttering rational speech, suffer from dyspepsia and spit. Unquote. The shift in power marked the beginning of parliamentary dictatorship in Italy, which would be characterized by the prime minister wielding considerable power during elections and swaying the municipalities to his side. On a regional level, the country was still run by appointed prefects who drew up election lists, appointed mayors and councilmen, and were in charge of law and order, as well as subverting the newspapers. Prefects were given their jobs by the Minister of the Interior, a position as coveted as Prime Minister. The left began reforms in 1877 with the abolishment of arrest for debt, which had been overflowing Italian prisons. DePrentice then set up a commission which would report on the state of Southern agriculture. The Copino Law brought about sweeping educational reform. Previously, education was exclusively handled by local jurisdiction, with most communities preferring to use local priests as schoolmasters. Few children attended school. Most parents needed their labor during the harvest or as an extra source of income from the factories. The new law made primary school education mandatory streamlining the teaching profession and giving small stipends to local municipalities for schools. The Tuscan language was also to be used in classes, as it was agreed upon by the government that this would be the modern Italian language. Copino, the Minister of Education, went so far as to say that Italy should only hire teachers from the Tuscan region. This was clearly impossible, but it shows how committed the entrenched powers were to extinguishing local dialects and cultures. 
In reality, school teachers needed to speak a variety of dialects just to be understood in the classroom. Additionally, mandated attendance could never seriously be enforced. Schooling did little to ebb the flow of backward thinking, and illiteracy continued to be commonplace. Lessons usually went in one ear and out the other. Or worse, lessons were being disputed and contradicted at home by ultra-religious parents and family. The saddest result of this thinking is the story of Italia Donati. Italia was born January 1, 1863, in a small town called Cintolese. She excelled at her studies and passed her teaching exams after her second attempt. Italia was then given a job as the schoolmistress for the small town of Porciano. Her wages were meager, at best she could get by. When the mayor of the town approached her with an offer of free accommodation at one of his houses, she could not just say no. She would be able to send the extra money back to her ailing father in Cintolese. Very quickly, she realized his motives were impure. She refused his sexual advances repeatedly, but she was quickly labeled by the town as the whore of the mayor. After several years, the rumors grew to such heights that she was accused of getting an abortion. She demanded to take a medical examination to prove her virginity, but the rumor only grew, and the medical procedure was refused. On May 31, 1886, Italia penned a short note to her brother, saying, quote, I am innocent of all the accusations made against me. I beg you, my only brother, to do whatever it takes to bring back my honor. I am the victim of public vilification, and my persecution will end only in my death. Let my innocence be proved. Unquote. She jumped into a river and drowned herself. Her autopsy proved she was in fact a virgin, and the people of Porciano walked her body shamefaced to her final resting place. It is truly a disgrace that these sentiments which caused a woman to end her life are still shared by many people across the globe, today. The Italian government was wary of its people, fearing they would revolt again. They believed their citizens needed moral education. Novels, polemics, and comic strips were produced en masse, often including moral tales about right and wrong. The most prolific writer of this period was Edmondo de Amicis. He sold millions of copies of his work during his lifetime, including his book Military Life in 1869, and his bestseller Cuore, or Heart, in 1886. De Amicis was a member of the left, but he also worshipped the state and the monarchy. The sentiment engulfed Italy, by way of De Amicis, and other popular authors of the time. Other works produced during this era include Michel Lissona's Will is Power in 1869 and Paolo Mentegazzo's Glories and Joys of Work in 1870. However, the most popular children's author during this period was Carlo Lorenzini, who wrote the book Le Eventer di Pinocchio in 1882, under the pen name Carlo Collodi. Pinocchio, much like the rest of the aforementioned books, emphasized the importance of having strong work ethic and doing good deeds. Christopher Duggins defines the literature created during this period well, stating, quote, The torrent of pedagogic literature in the decades after 1860 bore witness less to any well-thought-out educational agenda for the masses. The chances of this literature having much impact on the working-class children was slight. 
80% of rural income in the late 19th century went on meeting essential food needs. Unquote. In Tuscany, a group of painters who called themselves the Macchioli exploded on the scene. They captured Italian landscapes and focused heavily on the use of shadows in their pieces. Giuseppe Abate, Odorado Borani, and Vincenzo Cabianca are but a few who contributed to the early Impressionist movement. They call back to the amazing work that Caravaggio created with light, with particular emphasis on Italian peasants going about their daily lives. This use of shadows led to the artists claiming the name Macchi, which translates to spots. Macchioli believed art was created in these dark spots. Education, art, and literature were spreading, but in truth, these things barely reached the general population of Italy. It was meant to serve a very small but very aggressive Italian middle class. The authorities felt the only thing that would make poor Italians come together was forced military service. As soon as unification was declared, a lottery-based conscription drawing began and made its way through the country. Following military reforms in 1870, they expanded the range of conscripted soldiers to include all military-aged men. For three years, young men and boys who were deemed fit and who served no crucial role to society were sent away from their native province. This was even referred to as seeing Italy, it being the first time many of these new soldiers had stepped foot outside of their hometown. Tens of thousands of people would attempt to dodge and many would be successful. Eventually, the force of state power and the unnecessary cruelty shown toward draft dodgers changed Italy's perception of serving in the military. During the 1870s, many saw it as a rite of passage and a chance to escape the humdrum drudgery of the field or their family shop. Many young recruits saw it as a chance to let loose. Brothels and bars were frequented by young soldiers, who often had little else to do. This, no doubt, contributed to one in 100 Italian soldiers having STDs of some variety. Additionally, gangs of soldiers who were from the same area would harass and torment soldiers who were from somewhere else, with Southerners commonly being victimized by their northern comrades-in-arms. On Easter Sunday, 1884, the system showed its flaws. Salvatore Mizdia, a private from Calabria, was driven insane as a result of being bullied. He barricaded himself in his room and opened fire from out of his window. He killed five soldiers and wounded another seven. He ended up being shot by firing squad, despite pleas from Cesar Lombrosa that the soldier was mentally ill. Meanwhile, in Parliament, the left was quickly showing itself to be as relentless as the right in its crackdown of dissent. They shut down newspapers they couldn't bribe, rigged local and national elections, and suppressed local meetings, whether they were socialist or Catholic. This was all orchestrated by the authoritarian Minister of the Interior, Baron Nicotera. He was quickly replaced by Francesco Crispi, and in a petty attempt to get his job back, Nicotera aired dirty laundry about Crispi's personal life and proved Crispi was a bigamist. This forced Crispi to resign. Then another minister resigned, and infighting persisted, prevented any proposed reform from passing. This hampered Parliament's ability to do anything, and the petulance of those on the benches was causing the public to quickly lose faith in the government. Newspapers would often sensationalize these negative stories, 
as Italian readers ate up the parliamentary rumor mill. The opposition only grew more antagonistic during this period. They were now labeled the Estrema, or the Extreme, and they were composed of former Mazzinians, Republicans, and Radicals. They wanted universal suffrage, better working conditions, and lower taxes for the poorest Italians. The Radicals were led by the brilliant, hard-drinking, dual-fighting poet Felice Cavalotti. He was a constant voice for the far left and made a point to be controversial in his rhetoric and beliefs. He would go on to inspire a new generation of leftists, and eventually, his symbolic death would usher in the era of socialism. Rome looked worse than ever. Scaffolding was still set up outside most buildings, and hammers banged away at the ancient city endlessly. To quote Carducci, Twelve years of Sardinian rule had done more to destroy Rome than the Goths or the Vandals, unquote. A worrying pattern was starting to develop. Some projects were taking much longer than promised, and some were abandoned outright, leaving the massive loan given to the entrepreneur unpaid. This catastrophic business model would end up seeping its way into every aspect of Italian life. King Victor Emmanuel, unconcerned with the fate of his people, purchased property far from the city and was often found traipsing back and forth on his horse tailed by two hunting dogs. He was a military man and an autocrat, but he could recall few victories. In fact, most of his battles had been complete routs. He blamed ex-general La Marmora for the army's failings and refused to speak to him since the disaster of Custoza. Hearing that La Marmora was dying, Victor Emmanuel quickly changed his tune and forgave him on his deathbed. The sight of La Marmora shook King Victor to his core. After all, this was the man he fought alongside in a dozen different engagements. Soon after saying his goodbyes to La Marmora, the king became very feverish. It quickly became clear he was infected with malaria and would soon die. Pius IX, on hearing of the monarch's impending death, quickly repealed the Vatican's sanctions against Victor Emmanuel and lifted his excommunication. Pius forgave him for his transgressions. The king, for his part, wanted nothing but to die a good Christian and have his name cleared in the eyes of the church. It was a rare olive branch from the pontiff. Victor Emmanuel could now pass peacefully. He finally died on January 9, 1878, at the age of 57. His throne would pass to Umberto I, a much less charismatic figure, but also not as uncouth. The nation turned to the king's wife and first cousin, Margarita, as the new symbol for Italy. She was a dogmatic conservative zealot who more than once wanted parliament eliminated for good. Pius was not in the best of health. Since 1868, he had suffered increasingly from facial erysipelas, this infection eventually spread to his legs, rendering him unable to stand. By February of 1878, he knew his time was coming. He had a seizure which caused a massive heart attack. In his last moments, he cried out, quote, Guard the church I love so well and sacredly. Unquote. He was the second longest reigning pope in history after St. Peter. 
The passing of these two sacred figureheads marked a new beginning for the state. King Victor was able to do in death the one thing he could not do in life. He brought the nation together as one, for the first time in Italian history. The left capitalized excessively on the death of the king, and a new cult of the state began. Near-religious worship of the late sovereign swept the nation. Even the poorest Italians now felt saddened at the loss of the father of their country. Upwards of 200,000 Italians journeyed to Rome for the procession. And six years later, Italians made another massive pilgrimage to the late king's burial site. People quickly rallied around the center-left government, seeing the death of King Victor and the Pope as an opportunity to create a national identity in their own image. The left attempted to answer the call of their countrymen. Fairs, which promoted Italian invention and nationalism, as well as massive statue unveilings, made them popular with the poorest citizens. In the Vatican, Leo XIII was soon chosen as the new pope. He would go on to lessen the restrictions on Catholic voting, especially in local government, and would expand on the already sizable community outreach done by the Catholic Church. Leo quickly decided that the lack of Catholic representation in the Italian state was an error which must be corrected. He covertly funded and backed candidates using the Vatican's influence and resources, and soon the Catholic powers controlled much of the south of Italy. Many Sicilian and Neapolitan citizens saw Catholic charity as the singular alternative to godless socialism. This push and pull between the Catholic Church and socialist humanist ideals would greatly influence the future of Italian politics. Only recently was the clerical versus radical debate settled, in favor, it seems, of the former. The main voice for the humanist left at this time was still Garibaldi. His word carried immense weight in Italy, and he was revered throughout the world. He spent countless hours petitioning for the Tiber to be redirected. He argued it would improve the swamp-like conditions which made Rome a breeding ground for malaria, and it would also secure their new image as a modern Italian state. The plans were never carried out. If they were, it is very likely that King Victor's life, along with the lives of many other Roman citizens, would have been prolonged. Garibaldi was quickly fed up with parliamentary life. He wanted nothing more than to retire to his island and play with his goats and children. He felt what was needed in Italy was a dictator, someone with the will and influence to get things done for the good of the common people. What he saw instead was a circus of lions and hyenas, all vying for the freshest slice of meat. He wished more was done to help the South and he was appalled at the poverty which was tolerated by those in power throughout the countryside. His plans went with him to his grave. He died peacefully on June 2, 1882. His wishes to be cremated were not respected, and he is supposedly buried on the island of Caprera. Italy was entering a completely new political era. Everything had changed, not just the leaders and their dynamic, but the world around them as well. Former Mazzinists quickly realized that their leaders' initial ideals had been perverted. Clearly, more radicalism was needed to make Italy the kind of country where all men could be free, regardless of their political connections or economic status. Almost immediately, subversive activity was afoot. 
A young anarchist named Giovanni Passante attempted to stab King Umberto during a parade in Naples. The queen threw a bouquet of flowers at the would-be assassin's face and shouted for the prime minister, Caroline, to save the king. The accused was first sentenced to death, but then his sentence was commuted to life in prison. Passante was sent to the island prison of Portofereo, where his jailers abused and tortured him into insanity. Subjected to 24 hours a day of solitary confinement in a cell below sea level, his condition gradually declined, and he died some days before his 60th birthday. The political philosophy of anarchism to which Passante adhered was made popular toward the second half of the 19th century by Russian philosopher Mikhail Bakunin. He was a socialist who believed entirely in communal autonomy. Any authority, he claimed, was violence. His reach was very far in Italy, which had a long tradition of violent peasant uprisings. Bakunin even considered Italy a potential boiling pot for socialist and anarchist agitation. It would prove to be a serious problem for Italian authorities for decades, with anarchist agitation spreading in the industrial havens across Italy, as well as in central Italy especially. Across the globe, anarchists and communists were engaged in terrorist attacks on world leaders, threatening the power structures which were already in place. This was referred to as propaganda of the deed. This theory was coined by Carlo Piscane, who writes in his Political Testament of 1857, quote, Ideas spring from deeds and not the other way around, unquote. These violent ideas were incendiary, and the government believed the population had to be steered away from such thought, through violence if necessary. Augustino de Prentis, the on-again, off-again premier of the country, knew that reforms of some manner had to be made if he was going to keep the population in line. He saw Italy's incredibly small electorate as the problem. Only 600,000 people out of a population of nearly 30 million were able to vote. The right to participate in elections was based entirely on a citizen's income and education and gender. DePrentice expanded voting rights not because he was a fan of democracy, but because it gave him a farther reach and allowed him to more effectively rig elections while placating the people. He passed it largely thanks to the clerical far-right support. Many Catholic senators saw this increased electorate as an easy way to exploit religiosity in the countryside. To quote Dennis Mack Smith's book, Modern Italy, quote, an increased representation of minority groups aggravated the worst features of transformism and made parliamentary manipulation easier. No doubt the Prentice had intended as much. On general grounds, it was welcome that 7% instead of 2% of Italians now had the right to vote. Unquote. In practice, the Electoral Law of 1882 placed the center-left in a position to manipulate elections for as long as their strained coalitions held together. However, it had the side effect of giving the vote to the same rebellious industrial workers who were so infatuated with socialism. 
In fact, the first Italian Socialist Party was founded in Milan during this same period. Under De Prentis and Cairoli, Italian foreign affairs had remained neutral and anti-imperial. De Prentis couldn't stand diplomats, and Cairoli believed in keeping Italy's hands clean in all foreign affairs. For many years, Italy's main ally was naturally France. After all, the French had helped to free Italy. The French had also accepted millions of dollars worth of Italian exports. In fact, some 40% of all Italian exports were shipped to France. Their countries and their cultures also shared many similar qualities. But the controversy over Rome had soured the relationship for many. On the other hand, Italy retained good relations with Great Britain. Great Britain had zero objections to the conquest of the South, Venice, or Rome. To British statesmen, Italy was seen as the ultimate counterweight to French expansion in Europe. They believed it was entirely necessary as a geopolitical force. Prussia, too, had been a one-time ally of Italy in 1866. And although Prussian officials were often perturbed at the ineptitude of La Marmora, they also saw Italy as an incredibly strategic chess piece. This fooled many Italian generals and statesmen into believing that Italy was more powerful than they had the right to think. Italy had a top-rank navy and an ever-expanding military budget. However, they had very few raw resources and barely any capital. Any attempt to tamper with military funding was met by loud claims of weakness and cowardice from each side of parliament. Italy needed a strong military to defend itself from the Austrians, the French, or both. However, Parliament's policy held little weight with the king. He controlled foreign policy personally, often going above the heads of his diplomats to get deals of state done. Italy's relations with Austria improved greatly under Umberto, whose mother and grandmother were Austrian princesses. In time, Umberto would even visit Vienna and Franz Joseph would visit Venice, supposedly burying the hatchet of 1866. Things were still terribly tense between the two countries in spite of these seemingly friendly gestures. After 1870, the traditional balance of power in Europe was completely askew. Germany was leagues ahead of France and Austria militarily and economically. In 1878, the Congress of Berlin attempted to placate the various countries vying for influence in the Balkans. They divided up the land in Ottoman Europe. For years, Slavic nationalists had sown agitation throughout the region, culminating in several violently suppressed uprisings. Out of this violence arose the country of Bulgaria, which was, for all intents and purposes, a Russian puppet state. However, Bulgaria was so massive that many Greeks, North Macedonians, and Serbians found themselves under the thumb of a culture to which they had no allegiance. So the nations of Europe sat down and decided that Great Britain would grant territory to Greece, and in return they would be given the incredibly strategic island of Cyprus. Bosnia was made a protectorate of Austria. Russia had Bulgaria recognized as a country and France secretly received the go-ahead for their conquest of Tunisia and got their ownership of Algeria recognized internationally. Italy's diplomat asked feebly for Trentino, 
as compensation for Austria receiving Bosnia. At this, the Russian diplomat joked that if Italy was asking for more land, they must have lost another battle. For the rest of the conference, Italy's diplomat maintained a stern demeanor, but came away with nothing. In 1881, Italian interests were yet again thrown by the wayside when France preemptively invaded the North African country of Tunisia. Italy had invested heavily into Tunisia, and many Italian immigrants called the Bay's territory home. Upon hearing France had invaded, Italy sent troops in. An open conflict nearly erupted between the two European powers. Italy was furious with France. This conflict contributed to the country's decision to join the Triple Alliance with Germany and its old foe, Austria. Unfortunately, this decision alienated Italy, as they were now committed to serving a larger superpower. Germany and Austria saw Italy as a nation of ice cream peddlers and tourists. They only allowed Italy to be a junior member in their alliance. The people felt belittled by this treatment, causing anger to ferment in Italy's nationalist underbelly. This was not the Italy they were promised. They wanted Italy to be feared. Tunisia was the first of many colonial losses for Italy. Italians composed a large majority of the workers who built the Suez Canal, but Italy put very little capital toward the initial construction, so they were unable to profit off of the lucrative trading which happened there afterward. Many Italian patriots recalled how the Roman Empire conquered North Africa and made it one of the most profitable territories. These unrealistic and destructive imperial ideals were deeply ingrained in Italian culture after years of war and uncertainty. And it's possible this caused Italians to feel slighted when nothing of the sort was intended. Time and again, their plans were foiled by French intervention, and many Italians, the chief of their number being Crispy, believed the French were not friends of Italy, but rather their bitter enemy. They thought about who held up their march on Venice in 1859, who kept a garrison in Rome to the chagrin of the rest of Italy, and who snatched the protectorate of Tunisia from under their nose. Each perceived transgression had been committed by France. These arguments quickly gained traction with the people, and anti-French resentment spread throughout the country, due in large part to a propaganda campaign launched by the Crown and Crispy. The people's patience with the Prentice's politics was wearing incredibly thin, and change was clearly needed. Citizens resented the shifty nature of Parliament. No attempt at reform could fix the, quote, new Byzantium, unquote, as Cavallotti referred to it. The wounds bandaged by transformism were opening again. Valari, a conservative intellectual, concisely states the problems which he believed plagued Italy. Quote, it is high time that Italy began to realize that she has within herself an enemy which is stronger than Austria. Somehow we must face up to our multitude of illiterates, the ineptitude of our bureaucratic machine, the ignorance of our professors, the existence of people who in politics are mere children the incapacity of our diplomats and generals, the lack of skill in our workers, our patriarchal system of agriculture, 
and on top of all, the rhetoric which gnaws our very bones, unquote. The king, the left, and the right all agreed that a strong man was needed to weed out corruption and right the ship of state. They found their man in Francesco Crispi, who would dominate Italian politics in the late 1880s and early 1890s. The most pressing issue for the Italian people were those which affected their everyday lives. Agriculture was a complete disaster. People on the far left, like Cavalotti and the old-school Mazzinian Agostino Bertani, objected repeatedly to the lack of attention paid to rural citizens. Bertani's report on rural life, which he delivered on the floor of Parliament, shocked even the disinterested backbenchers. 15,000 people were living inside malaria-ridden caves just outside Rome. After the left took power, they commissioned a massive report on the state of their country's agriculture. It wasn't completed until 1885. To quote Dennis Mack Smith, the extinction of communal rights of pasture and wood gathering and the rights of way for the long-distance migration of herds destroyed the livelihoods of most people. The breaking up of communal lands and estates held by ecclesiastical and charitable trusts had not produced a stabilizing class of peasant proprietors, but rather benefited existing landlords." Unquote. The report revealed that after unification, the land that had once belonged to the state and the clergy was now in control of a few super-wealthy individual landowners. And that group of landowners was only getting smaller. In fact, in the census of 1881, it was recorded that there were only 100 well-off peasants and middle-class people for every thousand inhabitants. The peasant class of Italy had an astonishingly poor diet. It consisted almost entirely of rice, beans, pasta, and polenta. This destroyed the citizens' bodies. Pellagra, a deadly disease caused by lack of vitamin B, ravaged the countryside. The symptoms range from skin inflammation all the way to dementia. 100,000 cases of pellagra were reported in Italy in 1881 alone. The silent killer malaria also took the lives of countless Italians during this time. Although we don't have the statistics which show how many passed due to this disease, we can assume the numbers are high as it killed 600,000 people as recently as 2020. There were also frequent cholera outbreaks throughout the 1880s, which were caused by the government's utter lack of care in fixing their citizens' drinking water and living conditions. At least 50,000 people died due to their ineptitude. Sicilians and Sardinians were constantly turned away from military service, as many were physically unfit to participate in war, yet they were deemed completely fit to work in the mines or in the fields. This lifestyle led to an explosion of folk music, with songs like Bella Ciao first sung by deprived workers in the rice fields of Mantua, becoming popular throughout the countryside and well into the 20th century. During the premiership of De Prentis, some agriculture did grow. In the south, orange and lemon trees flourished. But the most popular crop was grapes. 
centuries-old chestnut and olive farms were uprooted and replaced with Italian grapes. France was unable to meet the demand for grapes due to a phylloxera outbreak, which infected their plants. This allowed Italy the chance to fill the void France had left. These new Italian vineyards were run by established landowners in the south. As the Suez Canal's trade routes flourished, at the advent of steam navigation, wheat prices crashed, due in part to wheat from East Asia saturating the market. In response, many of these established landowners withheld their own wheat, thus inflating local prices and starving the poorest. General anger rose among the lower classes. Many peasants searched for unproductive plots of land in which to plant wheat. The landowners objected, but they couldn't do anything about it at the time. In Romagna and northern Italy, socialism, trade unionism, and anarchism all flourished despite the government's attempts at suppression. With this cavalcade of problems, some small gestures were made to relieve the poor. The water system of Naples was redirected, and the hated Gris tax was lifted, causing the government's spending to drastically exceed its income. Besides these token efforts, very little was done to counteract these inhospitable conditions. So much of the state's money was already tied up in funding the armed forces, paying back debts from past wars, and upholding industries which were not lucrative. Italian industry had been slowly taking off in the northern half of the peninsula. Most people who grew crops also worked from home, using their personal spinning wheels in the off-season. Italy's few industrial centers were built around Piedmont's minor natural resources. Eventually, hydroelectricity became the main source of power for Italian industry, with many hubs springing up around rivers and other bodies of water. Thanks to an increase in tariffs, industry was able to flourish in some sectors. Giovanni Pirelli headed the Italian rubber industry, producing Pirelli tires, which are still on the market today. In 1886, he was the first also to produce electric cables in Milan. The textiles industry was strengthened in Legnano, and the production of wool in Vicenza exploded due to heavy tariffs on foreign imports. With the addition of a British-owned naval shipyard, the demand for steel rose due to the need to produce armaments for the vessels. By 1886, the Turney Steelworks began pumping out Italian steel, with cheap imported pig iron from across Europe. This need for foreign resources led to the subsidization of the shipping industry in Italy, which was previously severely lacking. Most developed nations, merchant marines, had steamships instead of sailing ships by the 1880s. However, in Italy, their million-ton merchant marine was primarily composed of sailing ships, with only 32,000 tons capable of fielding steam. Italy relied exclusively on the purchase of foreign ironclads and steam vessels. Eventually, Italy would take the lead in ironclad and steam production, right in time for trends in naval warfare to shift, leaving Italy in the dust again. This rapid growth was detrimental to Italian families. Children as young as nine years old were often given full-time shifts in steel factories or sulfur mines, contributing directly to the spread of diseases and a very low average life expectancy, 
of approximately 38 years. As 1887 began, a new issue arose in the Italian army. A detachment of 500 Italian troops was wiped out in Massau, along the shores of the Red Sea in East Africa, present-day Eritrea. The head of the foreign ministry suggested the fight happened in a place called Dogali. Though this place does not exist on any map, it stuck. The Prentice was visibly aged as he sat trembling with an almanac in hand, attempting to explain the massacre to lawmakers. Demonstrations in Parliament and on the street exploded, as anger over the soldiers who died swelled into nationalistic sentiment. The inflamed ultranationalist and expansionist minority was growing more vocal by the day. Following the Congress of Berlin in 1878, successive Italian administrations had sought compensation anywhere they could find it. This ideology led directly to the expansion of Italy by force, becoming a bipartisan issue. The British, who were always friendly with Italy, had suggested the port of Massau as a viable avenue for colonization and profit. When the port was established, Italian leaders had promised that this would not be a military installation. This was a lie. Thousands of Italian troops were stationed around the Red Sea, and they had pacified the local population bordering the coast. The interior was ruled by the kings and warlords of Ethiopia. They unequivocally resisted the Italian expansion into the mainland of their empire, and this is what initiated the Battle of Dogali. After Dogali, Francesco Crispi capitalized on the violent nationalist sentiment that swept the countryside. After being forced to resign in 1878, he found himself a part of the left-wing opposition to De Prentis. In true Italian political style, he was Minister of the Interior in De Prentis's cabinet by 1887. Crispi was anti-clerical, imperialist, and hot-headed. He was also the first Sicilian prime minister in Italian history. He fought on the barricades of Palermo in 1848 and then again with Garibaldi in 1860, but he turned his back on his revolutionary roots following unification. He famously said, quote, a republic would divide us, the monarchy makes us strong, unquote. He was a vehement anti-clerical and was known to bully Pope Leo to the point where he did not feel safe in the Vatican and threatened to move the home of Catholicism back to Avignon. Additionally, Crispy wholeheartedly hated France and supported the Triple Entente between Italy, Germany, and Austria. He even modeled his appearance after German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, copying his characteristic white handlebar mustache, but shaving his eyebrows to give his expression a softer tone. Four months after the Dogali disaster, De Prentice died, and Crispy was made prime minister. Not everyone was on board with Crispy's provocative nationalism and bellicose foreign policy. Each side had many who opposed him and his anti-French stance. Crispy initiated a trade war with France, which crippled the Italian economy. After finally having found its place on the world stage, Italy was now scrambling to find new trade partners to whom they could sell their wine and silk. This trade deficit was partly corrected when Italy began trading with Austria and Germany. But it was damaged still further due to the overproduction of Sicilian citrus 
and the failings of Italian vineyards. Italian vineyards were now infected with the same phylloxera that had decimated French grapes. The government failed to save these fledgling industries while funneling more and more money into the military in anticipation of a war with France. Crispy was attempting to carry out an expansionist foreign policy when his own people were hungry and hurting, and the failings of his geopolitical stance would soon become apparent. In 1880, Crispy put forward the first of two proposals for open war with France. Bismarck was wary of Italian capabilities, and he had little taste for a new war. He told Crispy, quote, What could Germany gain from war now? We have more Poles than we need, and more Frenchmen than we could ever digest, unquote. However, his prince, soon to be king, was the unequivocally bellicose Wilhelm. Additionally, the military staff under Moltke wanted to wage war in order to prevent further French and Russian armament. This war was meant to coincide with the centennial of the French Revolution. It would begin with King Umberto's review of the troops in the recently annexed German province of Lorraine. Although there was anger in Paris after the review, France did not declare war, and Crispy's gambit failed. Afterwards, when Crispy was asked if he was attempting to start a war, he said, quote, Nothing could be further from the truth. I want peace and peace alone. Any other war would be a crime. Whoever provoked it would be committing an offense against humanity, unquote. There was a drastic shift in France's feelings toward Italy which was noticeable right away in the countryside and abroad. Many felt the problem wasn't with France, however, but with Italy's age-old enemy, Austria. Regardless of their political status, Italian nationalism was spreading like wildfire. Some nationalists preferred to call themselves irredentists, coining the term from a speech made by a former Garibaldian. The terra irredente, was the unreconciled Italian land which belonged to various foreign nations, mainly Austria. Irredentists claim that Italy was missing thousands of miles of land and that millions of Italians were being abused and subjected to bitter cruelties by foreign nations. They believed the capture of Venice and Rome was just the first step in uniting the Italian nation. One irredentist attempted to kill Austrian Kaiser Franz Joseph, when he visited the city of Fiume on the eastern Adriatic. These ideological crusaders claim that the Dalmatian coast, Istria, Trent, Nice, Savoy, Corsica, Malta, and even the North African coast, all rightfully belonged to Italy. The leader of this ragtag group was the chauvinist Gabriel D'Annunzio, whose plays, poems, and polemics spread the word of nationalism. His books, such as The Triumph of Death and his play La Nave, all attempted to convince a new generation of where their loyalty should lie, with the state and with power. These provocateurs would inflame Italian public opinion and contribute directly to Italy's involvement in World War I, where 750,000 Italian soldiers died for the sake of the aforementioned land. Following that devastating war, these nationalists would become the first fascist hit squads of Il Duce of all Italians, Benito Mussolini. Anti-French sentiment grew stronger and spread farther under Crispy.
The French ambassador in Rome was shocked to find that schoolchildren there believed the Battle of Solferino in 1859 was fought against France as opposed to alongside them. In this climate, it's no wonder Italian banks, supported by French capital and credit, went under. French creditors and financiers increasingly stopped doing business with Italy due to their aggressive foreign policy. One would think that Crispy would have been a political pariah after all this, but in fact it only made him more popular. It was the era of jingoism after all, and it seemed to be affecting the entire planet. Crispy personified the idealistic, hard-working autocrat. Carducci and Cavallotti admired him, but he was also loved by the conservative King Umberto. The people of Italy saw him as a powerful, paternal, and pragmatic statesman who did what was necessary, often over the head of Parliament, via royal decree. As these Italian banks proceeded to implode, however, massive irregularities were uncovered, implicating the most powerful Italians. The worst offender was the Banca Romagna, which gave millions in interest-free loans to Italian politicians, newspapers, and building speculators. This money was usually never returned, and it was discovered that the bank had printed money with its politicians' complicity, but without the authority of the state. After a private report on the mass amount of irregularities was released to the leaders of Parliament, Crispy pushed it under the rug and tried to conceal its existence. After going above the king's head to put out feelers for an alliance with France, Crispy was forced to resign in early 1891, but everyone knew he would be back. He was replaced by the right-wing Sicilian Di Rudini. He wanted peace, reduced military spending, and a balanced budget. Three things Crispy's grumbling supporters decried as weakness at a time when strength was the key to a nation's success. Di Rudini did not have the moderating touch Cavour had, which allowed him to bring and hold together a majority coalition. His rule was unstable from the beginning, and he quickly resigned, allowing for Giovanni Gelotti to become prime minister. Gelotti was an avowed centrist and showed immense tact in parliamentary dealings. He was also a skilled manipulator. He was also one of the youngest prime ministers of the era, only in his mid-fifties when he got the job. His diverse coalition of centrists, conservatives, and liberals showed the power of transformism under a competent political strategist. He was definitely considered the best candidate in the king's perspective. Gelotti was Catholic and Piedmontese, two checks off the proverbial list. Dennis Mack Smith states in his book Modern Italy that Gelotti famously argued that a tailor would not dress a handicapped man in regular clothes. So democracy in Italy had to be handled in the same way. Not surprisingly, Gelotti holds the infamous distinction of being one of the most corrupt politicians in Italian history. In 1891, a single deputy on the far left discovered the secret bank reports and demanded a full investigation. Gelotti refused to bring the issue to Parliament, confirming his complicity. Crispy supported not having a debate as well, protesting vehemently from the back benches that it would be quote-unquote unpatriotic. Later, in 1892, the Credito Mobilier, one of the largest credit unions in the country, was flat broke, 
and had to suspend payments once again due to overloaning and shady business. Despite Crispy's attempts to distract the public with the possibility of war with France, the people were anxious to hear news on the banking scandal. Another commission was called forth to investigate the matter, and more gross irregularities were discovered. To compound on this, the housing bubble had finally burst in Rome. Shoddy businessmen were never asked follow-up questions by the banks, and there was no consistency in banking policy due to the government's lack of control over the industry. If anything, the banks were controlling the government. Gelotti had to resign, as he was directly implicated in the scandal. But he would still go on to serve as prime minister four more times. In a scene eerily similar to the 2008 financial crisis, virtually no corrupt bankers or politicians were punished. Yet in the years to follow, Hundreds of civilians would be executed by Italian soldiers for civil discord. After the banking scandal broke, Parliament attempted to pass some reforms under Prime Minister Zanardelli, but after his appointment for foreign minister was vetoed by the king, he resigned in protest. And who better to seize power than Crispy? He was thought to be the only person who would be able to fix the mounting political issues and social unrest in the country. Socialist thinking was becoming a serious problem for the government, and the economic strain faced by many Italians was near unbearable. This only exacerbated socialism's spread. Agrarian strikes began in the 1890s, spreading throughout the countryside and often becoming violent. As with any leftist agitation, Infighting between the various groups began immediately. The maximalists wanted to begin the revolution right away, while the minimalists wanted to wait until Italy was industrialized. Crispy, in spite of his recent involvement in the banking scandals, received overwhelming support to crush the rebellion before social cohesion broke down and Italy devolved into a failed state. Crispy's native island of Sicily was the home of the worst agitation, Here, a violent group of radicals known as the Fassi, literally the bundle, pushed for workers' rights, especially for the miners who worked in Sicily's interior. In December of 1894, several incredibly violent episodes showcased the swelling anger at the Italian state. At Calta Vorturo, 13 Sicilians were killed by Italian soldiers for throwing stones and attempting to take over a plot of land. At Giardinello, Protesters who were demanding better treatment became violent and began looting the mayor's palace. In response, Italian soldiers opened fire on the house, indiscriminately killing eight civilians inside. As revenge, the town citizens killed the town clerk and his wife, butchering the couple and placing their heads on spikes. In La Carafridi, the horrendous conditions of the sulfur mines contributed to widespread disease and death. Prior to the local miners' uprising, a 17-year-old boy was killed at the start of his shift by a falling rock. The boss docked the boy's pay for the rest of the day because he was dead. He then docked an hour of pay for the rest of the men for the time it took to dig the boy's body from his premature burial site. This is when the people had had enough. Toll houses were burned down, and the citizens paraded through towns with shouts of death to the mayor, down with taxes, ringing loudly in the streets. 
In response, the affluent shouted down from their balconies, death to the instigators. Government troops arrived and opened fire on the crowd in the town square, killing 11 people and wounding many more. Crispy quickly instituted martial law in Sicily and sent another 40,000 troops there. This was all done under the guise of maintaining order. In reality, up to a 1,000 dissident Sicilians were sent to faraway island penitentiaries. When the marble workers of Massa and Carrara revolted, martial law was also declared there. Crispy proved himself an authoritarian in spite of his professed democratic beliefs. He suppressed and disenfranchised hundreds of thousands of Italians simply because they were socialists. Crispy went as far as to claim the Sicilian Fasi were funded by the French. The far left rallied and surprisingly formed a united front against Crispy. Likewise, his domineering personality was quickly wearing thin on his fellow legislatures. In December 1894, Gelotti returned to Parliament and threw down the metaphorical gauntlet. He came armed with documents, letters, and reports. Crispy was implicated directly in the banking scandal. Additionally, the evidence revealed Crispy's wife's infidelity, as she had sent hundreds of letters to an unknown lover. This sullied Gelotti's reputation, as he had to explain how he came to find these documents. This incident caused Crispy to shut down Parliament in anger. When asked about his involvement in receiving interest-free loans, he said, quote, At my age, after 53 years of service to my country, I have the right to believe myself invulnerable and above all these libelous accusations, unquote. In 1895, Crispy's rigged election granted him control of virtually all of Parliament, and he spoke privately of dissolving the quote-unquote corrosive institution for good. For nearly six months, the country was run by Crispy via royal decree. At this time, he also personally controlled several cabinet positions, not believing in many of his colleagues' abilities. In Ethiopia, following the destruction of the 500 at Dogali, the war did not go as smoothly for the emperor of Ethiopia, Johannes, or Jan. He was fighting a combined coalition of Mahdists in Sudan, Italian reinforcements who were sent against public opinion, and a former vassal named Raz Alula. At the Battle of Galabat, the Sudanist Mahdist killed Emperor Jan, and in the power vacuum that followed, a Shehwan Amran king ascended to the position of emperor. His name was Menelik II. Ethiopia is not a homogenous country. Much like Italy, it's composed of an incredibly diverse set of cultures. Amharic was the language Menelik used, but there are many others, including Oromo, Tigrinya, Sidamo, Walayet, and a dozen others. Likewise, many sections of the country practice different religions as well. The fact that Ethiopia was not united under one language and religion made the country seem like easy pickings to the Italians of the time. They believed they could divide the people in order to more easily colonize the area. The Italians quickly put their support and funding behind Menelik and his feudal army, hoping to use him as a pawn. Instead, the Nagusa Nagast, or King of Kings, would come to be the only African leader to repel European colonizers and be worshipped for it. 
The conquest of Ethiopia following Menelik's rise to power was never-ending. He conquered the Oromo people and is accused of butchering millions in the invasions he led as king of Shewa and later as emperor of Ethiopia. Claiming descent from King Solomon and Queen Sheba, Menelik quickly gained control of his dukes, or Raz. He nearly doubled the size of his small empire during his 14-year reign, annexing territory and destroying his rivals. Being a brilliant commander and a well-read scholar, he understood the importance of modernizing his state. He and his predecessor introduced the electric light, automobile, telephone, the photograph, and the railway to Ethiopia. They had international connections and were incredibly close with Russia. Both countries were primarily Orthodox Christian, Ethiopia being one of the supposed homes of Christianity. France would ally themselves with Ethiopia as well. They were interested in controlling East Africa's crucial trading ports, which were currently in British and Italian hands. Ethiopia had modernized rapidly. It was a state which had existed as a feudalistic society up until the 1880s. Menelik's undertaking can only be compared to the Meiji Restoration in Japan, and even that took 50 or more years. Ethiopia's transformation took place in under 30 years, but it came at a high price. The fundamentalists of Ethiopia opposed these modernizations, the queen among them. She felt that adopting the ideals and technology of European warfare would make them little more than satellites. In spite of these protests, Menelik decided to rush his people into the technological future. He saw the storm clouds on the horizon. He knew the Italians would not be content with the coast. Menelik bided his time and signed the Treaty of Ucciali with Italy six weeks after his ascension to emperor. In Rome, the document gave Italy complete suzerainty over Ethiopia and made them rulers of the country in all but name. In Addis Ababa, the Amharic translation reads quite differently. It stated that Ethiopia was a sovereign nation, which, if necessary, could call on Italian assistance in times of war or emergency. Crispy was furious at this and demanded the protectorate over Ethiopia he was promised. Menelik retorted, quote, I will not remain indifferent when foreign governments from far away come to occupy Africa, unquote. Battle lines were drawn and the situation quickly devolved into a cold war. Crispy still had to deal with the issues on Italy's mainland. In the meantime, Italian expeditions were sent to Africa. One was sent up north to Casala and the other west into Tigray. These encroachments were seen as incredibly provocative by Menelik, so he called for a general mobilization of his forces. Ethiopia could call on a feudalistic military of over 100,000, while Italy could barely muster 50,000 men when the war began, many of whom were native African allies. They believed they would be fighting against quote-unquote savages who used spears and arrows. They were incredibly wrong. The thousands of dead Italian soldiers would be a testament to their foolish ignorance. To their surprise... Ethiopia used modern firearms, and their French artillery outranged Italian guns. The Italian army was unsure of their goals in the war with Ethiopia. They feebly marched to their strung-out but defensible forts in Tigray and waited for the enemy. At the Battle of Alagay, Ras Mekonen expertly divided his forces and surrounded a smaller force made up of Italians and East Africans. 
He captured the Italians, but ruthlessly exterminated any African soldier found fighting with the enemy. 500 Ethiopian men were killed or wounded, while Italian forces suffered nearly 2,000 casualties, most of which were their native allies. After this defeat, cries of Viva Menelik were heard throughout colleges from Paris to Rome, and the Ethiopian emperor was quickly becoming an international sensation. Crispy doubled down and sent another 40,000 men to Ethiopia. At Mikel, the isolated Italian garrison was quickly put under siege by Menelik's forces. The Ethiopian queen, Taitu, who was a very accomplished general, quickly captured the fort's water supply. In no time at all, the 46,000 Italian and native troops were desperate for a drink of water. After a 15-day siege, Menelik agreed to terms with the Italian commander. All Italian prisoners were released with their weapons. Emperor Menelik II, the military strategist and diplomat who changed history by Tilahun Tasu, does not reference the native African soldier's fate. But if the Battle of Alage's account is any indication, they were wiped out. These two defeats extinguished Italian morale. But Italian commander Bakhtiari felt his army, now able to boast 50,000 Italian soldiers and 20,000 African soldiers, would be more than enough to defeat the so far victorious African emperor. Showing immense foresight, Menelik skirted around the Adrigat fortress. A siege there would only waste time and men, both of which were running low. He had no way to feed his army, so he had to act fast or risk desertion and starvation of his 100,000 strong force. Bakhtiari was incessantly bombarded with telegrams from the war office and from Crispy. Driven to a near nervous breakdown, he decided on a plan of attack. Three columns, composed of 5,000 men each, would march toward three separate yet adjoining heights, compelling the Ethiopians to battle and then carving them apart with three arcs of fire. The plan was good in theory, but when executed, it was a complete mess. There were no reliable maps of the area and very few reliable scouts. The only map in their possession was one which was hand-drawn by Bakhtiari himself. He had no idea he was about to be involved in one of the worst military defeats of all time. At Adwa, 15,000 Italians marched toward their fate. They were met on their left by Raz Michael and Makonin's special forces. This initial attack was repulsed by the Italians under General Albertoni. For a kilometer, Ethiopian forces fell back. A single Ethiopian officer named Gebeyehu held up the retreat and shouted, quote, Those of you who survived this battle and returned to Shewa, tell everyone how Gebeyehu died, unquote. He charged forward on his horse alongside his newly inspired men and made it to Italian artillery positions before being killed by Italian machine gun fire. His charge distracted the entire Italian positions left. Razmekonin's men moved to split the Italians and attack General Albertoni's isolated column. The fight raged, and by 9.30, the Italian columns were all effectively isolated. Menelik knew the Italian strategy, and he used the perfect counter. He now had one last column of Italians to destroy. General Bakhtiari attempted to take the heights of Zebon de Roux, 
But to quote Tilahun Tasu, a native Ethiopian historian, the Ethiopians, who were agile, occupied it before the Italians. From that high point, the Ethiopian army attacked the Italians. Out of 610 high-rank Italian officers, only 258 survived to flee, unquote. A fourth column of reserve was brought in to try and stem the rout. These Italians were completely wiped out by Ethiopians waiting in ambush in the tall grass. During this ambush, Menelik ordered the Ethiopian cavalry to sweep the field. Surviving Italian soldiers described the cavalry's charge as something akin to a, quote, mountain falling, unquote. One Italian colonel shot himself and finding the suicide attempt insufficient, shot himself again instead of facing the storm that was headed his way. In the disastrous retreat which followed, Ethiopian soldiers chased down the few remaining Italians, and there are reports that some Italian prisoners were castrated. For the most part, however, it is agreed that most Italian prisoners were treated fairly by Menelik and his men. The queen and her courtiers were found relieving the suffering of the wounded and giving water to Ethiopian and Italian soldiers alike. During the fight, 6,000 Italians died. Another 5,000 native African soldiers died. And 4,000 or more Italians were taken prisoner. Ethiopia suffered somewhere between 10 and 14,000 casualties. It is said to have taken four whole days to bury the dead. Supposedly, more Italian soldiers died during this one engagement than in the War of 1848, the War of 1859, and the War of 1866 combined. After receiving news of the battle, the Italian public was furious. There were nightly protests in the streets and railroads were even destroyed to prevent reinforcements being sent to Africa. In no time at all, Crispy would be forced to resign yet again. All his blustering and heavy-handed politics had finally blown up in his face. He would end life ignominiously, heavily in debt and nearly blind, attempting to jot down notes in the hopes that they would be turned into a memoir. The virtual dictatorship he created collapsed overnight, and Italy was left without a solid foundation once again. The coins bearing Umberto's face as Ethiopian emperor were hastily melted down, and a massive indemnity was paid to Ethiopia. The treaty which ended the war also recognized Ethiopia as a sovereign nation. The racist stereotypes Italians held of Africans proved to be completely unfounded. Italians had been brought back down to size. Another attempt was made on King Umberto's life in 1897 by an anarchist agitator. This was only the beginning of what was to come. The failure of Italy at home and abroad, rising food costs, and the recent death of Felice Cavalotti, who died fighting his 32nd duel after his carotid artery was cut, all led to massive protests in 1898. In Milan, one of the worst instances of state violence occurred. Eighty or more people were butchered when the military head of Milan suddenly opened fire at a procession of nuns and beggars. 
He used artillery fire and canister shot on a civilian population. And what was worse, he was awarded the highest honor in Italy by King Umberto for, quote, the great service he rendered to their institutions and civilization, unquote. A further 1,500 people were thrown in prison, and the blowback in Parliament was such that the second-time Prime Minister, Di Rudini, was forced to resign again. He was replaced by military general Louis Pelou, who came very near closing Parliament for good on several occasions. Pelou showed himself to have some tact and resigned after several failed attempts to wrangle in the country. In Patterson, New Jersey, a young Italian immigrant named Gaetano Bressi was beside himself with anger over the news of the massacre in Milan, and the medal ceremony which had followed merely added insult to injury. He returned to Italy with ill intentions. When he arrived, he procured a thirty-two revolver and waited for his moment. The king was on a routine visit to Monza with his wife when he stopped his carriage to say hello to a man he recognized in the crowd. This is when Gaetano stepped out and shot the king four times. The king collapsed, but not before saying, quote, I don't think it's too serious, unquote. However, by the time a doctor saw him, he was dead. Bressi later stated that it was retribution for the dead in Milan. Following this shocking act, the mood in the country finally calmed down. Umberto, much like his father, did more in death than he did in life to assuage the people's anger. Although he was partly responsible for the banking scandal, disastrous colonial policy, and authoritarian rule, many Italians still consider him to be the good king. His assassination was seen as a bridge too far by many, even the far left. Victor Emmanuel III would go on to become king, after which a national time of mourning was declared. Gaetano Bressi was found mysteriously dead in his jail cell a year after the attack. The official report is that it was suicide, though this claim is rather hard to believe. It's very likely he was murdered by his prison guards. A hundred years of Italian history has gone by, and the question still remains, what is an Italian? Is it a way of being? Is it a way of thinking? Is it just doing that funny hand thing? Through my research of this period of time in Italy, one thing was made abundantly clear. Italians were obsessed with their place in the world. Their claustrophobia and their unease and sometimes violent and oppressive relationships with their neighbors is a direct result of thousands of years of being oppressed themselves. The fear that Austria could do to Italians what Julius Caesar did to the Germanic peoples of his day was a primary fear of the Italian public. Even in socialist and humanitarian circles, deep-rooted insecurities pervaded every level of Italian life. In the hundred years since Napoleon, a country was made. But how that country is defined is still up for debate today. It's easy to claim that Italy is and always has been a right-wing country. There is no doubt that the influence of the Catholic Church is overwhelming there. You could also make the argument that Italy was a foundational bedrock for the internationalist movement, many of its people participating in the various wars for liberation throughout the 19th and 20th century. Garibaldi himself was an anti-clerical who did not believe in the Christian God, 
And Gelotti famously said that, quote, the church and state are two intersecting lines that should never meet, unquote. Well into the 21st century, the question of what makes an Italian is still of paramount importance. With the rise of the first completely right-wing coalition in Italian history, the question of who is and who isn't Italian may start to become more and more relevant. Surely the memories and collective trauma of the past 100 years deeply influenced the formation of Italy. Today, Italy struggles to come to terms with the realities of its past, as much as it struggles to move through the present to build a better future. Although the worrying sign of authoritarianism in Italian politics started to crop up in the 1700s and 1800s, they were only made worse when nationalism reared its ugly head under Crispi and later Mussolini. During the 1890s, the young, soon-to-be douce of all Italians, was working as a leftist newspaper editor for Avanti, while the Futurist Party, whose main focus was power and intense patriotism, rose to prominence under their leader, D'Annunzio. Italy's failures during this expansionist period would lead directly to its own castigation as the battle lines were drawn for the soul of the nation. The formation of Italy demonstrated how far shrewd politicking could go. Parliament was seen as the sole reason Italy was in such a mess. Little to no blame was placed on Crispi nor the king, even though it rightfully belonged there. If a democratic parliament wasn't the answer, then what is? Unfortunately, it would take a whole world war, as well as another Italian civil war, to answer that question. Eventually, Italy arrived at their answer. Fascism. Socialism was considered to be too self-serving, with little emphasis on the, quote, good of the race or nation, unquote. Liberalism was seen as a corrupt cesspool of glad-handing politicians. Italian fascists believed that a nation and its political ideology could only truly assert itself through violence. The Catholic Church, the king, the liberals, and the conservatives quickly found themselves bowing to the most reactionary government known to the world at that point. With the rise of fascism in Italy and the later rise of Nazism in Germany, the world descended into complete chaos once more. It wasn't until after World War II ended and the ultranationalists were defeated that Italy could finally call itself a republic. But the rest of this story will have to wait for another series of Turning Tides. Thank you all again so much for listening. And stay tuned for the next three-part series detailing the colonization of Puerto Rico, which will begin airing on January 24th, 2023. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening.